Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is an MCRT podcast. Today we're going to deal with some diabetes issues. Now, in the works is a podcast on all things sick patient DKA. We've been running a study. We've had, I think, 160 patients who we've run through a no ICU admission severe DKA protocol, and we will be talking about that. I'll bring a friend. We'll have fun. But this is a little bit different. Today we're going to be talking primarily about insulin pumps, a topic some of you may know about, but many, I think, uh, have never really heard in-depth information about. And that's a problem because patients more and more are getting their type 1 diabetes or insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes managed with pumps. And if they come to you and you might be at a shop without an endocrinologist, you're going to be like, what do I do with this thing? So I'm going to have a friend come and tell you what to do with these things. And that friend is a guy named Josh Miller. He's a assistant professor of internal medicine at Stony Brook. He is an endocrinologist with a particular interest in diabetes. He's published. He works on this. He's amazing. He is actually the diabetes czar. I'm not sure if that's his exact title here, but that's essentially what he does. I mean, he runs all things diabetes for the entire hospital. He's a wonderfully knowledgeable and fun guy to talk about, a wonderful teacher. And so we will get to Josh talking about insulin pumps and some other topics in just a bit. Before we do that, uh, a quick plug. I have a job opportunity for you here at Stony Brook Medicine, and this is a rare, rare job opportunity. I have an ED intensive care slot, meaning uh, almost all or all of your work will be done in an EDICU. If you don't want to, there will be uh, no shifts in the standard emergency department. I cannot offer you any shifts in the ICU upstairs. Um, so essentially, it is a full-time ED critical care gig. You need to have done critical care fellowship in any of the various uh, disciplines thereof. You don't necessarily need to be uh, credentialed, certified in critical care. Uh, we could work around that because you're not working in the ICU upstairs. If you're interested, go to mcrit.org, contact, um, and uh, contact me through there, and we'll get you set up with uh, what you need to provide us so that we can start taking a look at you. Okay, enough. Let's get to Josh Miller on the management of insulin pumps and other topics germane to sick patients coming in with diabetes. Tell us about insulin pumps and how we should deal with them when the patient comes into the emergency department. So, Scott, insulin pumps are are the latest and greatest and what a lot of people consider to be the gold standard for helping people, especially with type 1 diabetes, but some people with type 2 diabetes manage their diabetes. Um, more and more people of late are going to be coming to the hospital with technology attached to them in the form of insulin pump therapy, in the form of continuous glucose monitors. And I would say we're probably now the closest we've ever been to coming up with a smart or artificial pancreas in the form of an insulin pump to help people control their diabetes without much patient input at all. Very cool. Now, so folks are going to come in, and this device is giving them continuous insulin throughout the day, even when they're sleeping, and it goes in through a little, well, how would you describe the interface between this machine and the patient? It's a great question. So first and foremost, I'm glad you used the word machine. It is indeed a machine. It's a pager-like device. And inside the device is a reservoir, a plastic reservoir, that for the vast majority of patients has short-acting, rapid-acting insulin in the reservoir. The reservoir then uh, travels uh, by way of a plastic cannula to the patient, delivers that insulin through a very, very small four millimeter or so plastic cannula that's uh, placed underneath the skin. 
Um, the pump site, as it's called, the infusion site, allows insulin to be given by the pump at a very, very slow, very constant rate uh, at the site of delivery over the course of many days. And the site itself is changed by the patient every two to three days. When we talk with patients and clinicians about insulin pump therapy, there's this thought about what the pump can do and what the pump cannot do. So first and foremost, the pump uh, is not an automated device insofar as patients need to interface with the pump on a regular basis to tell the pump how much insulin to give themselves when they're eating meals and when they're correcting for hyperglycemia. Uh, secondly, and we hear this often in the hospital, an insulin pump is not surgically implanted like you might have uh, in the form of a TENS unit or something like that. Um, it is very much inserted by uh, the patient on a regular basis. The settings for the pump, however, are almost always devised based on conversation between the patient and their endocrinologist or their physician to talk about how patients can use their pump settings to their advantage to help address their diabetes needs. Um, so when a patient with an insulin pump comes to the hospital, through the emergency department especially, um, the number one piece of advice I give people, the number one piece of advice is treat it like it is, uh, which is a very uh, uh, sophisticated medical device that should not be taken off uh, unless there is trauma or some critical emergency situation where the pump does have to come off. So the default should always be to call an endocrinologist or someone at the hospital who's skilled with insulin pump therapy, a diabetes educator, a diabetes nurse, um, to talk about what to do when the pump is taken off. Uh, all too often, we get phone calls about patients with type 1 diabetes or ketosis-prone type 2 diabetes who are on insulin pump therapy, and the pump was inadvertently removed in their care, and the patient unfortunately went on to develop DKA, and uh, they can get quite ill as a result. So the first thing I tell pay, uh, providers, clinicians uh, in multiple settings is don't take the pump off unless absolutely positively uh, necessary. Now, um, Josh, before, before you go on, uh, that's wonderful at a center like ours where we have you and your brethren to advise us and help us out. A lot of the EDs are community shops. They might not even have uh, an endocrinologist regularly on call. They might not even have one on staff. Um, how, what would you advise those folks, and how do they know that the device they're leaving on is actually working? That's a great question, Scott. So, yes, there are a number—I should say yes as more— and more patients start using these devices, small and large health systems uh, need to develop approaches to how to address those patients' needs as they come to the hospital. If you're at a smaller institution, community hospital, where there are no endocrinologists on staff, um, first and foremost, I would say sort of parenthetically that the hospital really needs to work on a policy to help educate their clinicians and their clinical staff about insulin pump therapy. But secondly, um, in general, you will never go wrong in taking off an insulin pump so long as at the time the pump is taken off or removed from the patient, a substitute sub-Q insulin regimen is put in place at that moment. The times where we find ourselves in trouble are when patients have their pumps removed, especially those with type 1 diabetes, and a replacement injection insulin regimen is not implemented. And so the patient is absent any basal insulin over the course of many hours and that's when DKA happens. So if you're at a smaller site 
where you don't have the luxury of having an endocrinologist there or a diabetes-minded individual to help, but the pump does absolutely have to come off, make sure you give some sub-Q short or intermediate-acting insulin um, to make sure the patient has some insulin on board before you're able to sit down and spend some time with the device and spend some time with the patient to find out where they can get uh, some input from an endocrinologist or a diabetologist. That makes complete sense. Is there any way to just look at the device and say, oh, this thing looks like it's working fine. Let's just leave it versus, huh, maybe the reason the patient's here is their pump is not functioning. It's really, really tough just by looking at an insulin pump unless you interact with them on a regular basis to know whether the pump is functioning correctly or delivering insulin correctly. I say that because there are a number of different variables that are at play when a patient with diabetes on an insulin pump presents with hyperglycemia or even if they present with another medical condition but they happen to have the pump on for their diabetes. You can have problems with the pump itself and the delivery mechanism. You can have problems with the tubing getting kinked. You can have problems at the infusion set, which uh, is what sits on top of the patient's skin and delivers insulin into the interstitial space. You can also have problems with the insulin itself. We've had patients come in where the insulin in, their, uh, in the vial that they're using to fill their pump has, has expired, and they don't know that, and uh, they come in and DKA. So... It's very difficult for a non-pump-minded clinician to look at the pump and be able to say yes or no, this is working or not. The analogy I usually give to folks is if a patient comes into your emergency department with an LVAD or a patient comes in with an AICD and you're concerned that the AICD is firing incorrectly, you will always call an LVAD, uh, a member of an LVAD team, or you always call a cardiologist to come and take a look at the pacemaker. So from my perspective, it's very, very difficult to assess the pump unless you interact with them on a regular basis. Fair enough. Okay, a patient comes in with a pump, but they are still, despite the pump's presence, in DKA. They have a sugar of 700. They have a significant anion gap. We call you up and you answer the phone. What are you going to advise us to do? Yeah. So I would say most endocrinologists would answer that question by saying, take the insulin pump off. If you have a patient with, you know, proven type 1 diabetes on an insulin pump and they're coming in in DKA, um, the pump should probably come off and either a replacement sub-Q insulin regimen should be put in place, which addresses the DKA, or they should be put on an IV insulin infusion. Um, I think very rarely you can treat the DKA with the pump, but because of many of those variables I mentioned and others, it is challenging to use the pump to treat DKA. Uh, so for most of those patients, I'll recommend that the patient come off the pump and either we'll put them on an insulin drip or uh, in some cases we can treat them with stacked, short-acting or rapid-acting insulin over the course of a few hours to 12 hours to close their gap and treat their metabolic milieu. And then we have conversations with the team and with the patient, of course, about a criteria for safely resuming pump therapy. Now, when we actually want to turn off the pump, quote-unquote, is it how do we do that? Do we just ask the patient, hey, you know, turn off the, the actual controller portion? Do we remove the infusion site, thereby preventing the patient from going back on the pump during this ED visit? What's, what's the way you advise? So that's a great question. There are um, every – well, let me back up. A pump is a machine, and the beauty of a machine is that it does have an on-off button. In my opinion, that's probably one of the greatest benefits to pump therapy when compared to insulin injections. Insulin injections, you have to deal with depot insulin and the pharmacokinetics of the insulin as it's designed. But a pump has an on-off button. Um, unfortunately, the way to turn off or what we call suspend pump therapy 
uh, varies from device to device. Um, there are about three or four widely used insulin pumps on the market, and the interface, the user interface on each of those pumps varies a little bit uh, from pump to pump. So first and foremost is absolutely, as you said, ask the patient. Um, the vast majority of patients on insulin pump therapy, especially those with type 1 diabetes, know so much about their diabetes and know how to use the pump really, really well. So if you just ask them to please suspend their pump, uh, they can walk you through it and suspend the pump, and then they can resume the pump when, they, um, when, when deemed clinically appropriate. The other benefit to pump therapy that perhaps we'll get to in a little bit is some of the finer settings you can utilize to modify the amount of insulin delivered. So nearly every pump comes with a function called temporary basal, and a temp basal setting is a setting that the patient can put in to tell the pump to give slightly more or slightly less than their usually programmed basal insulin based on the clinical situation. So if a patient comes in and they're hypoglycemic and you're seeing them in the emergency department, you might ask them, sir, please suspend your pump. You might also ask them, you know, might you consider temp basaling down? Or the patient may themselves say, Dr. Weingart, I'm going to temp basal down because my sugar is low and then I'll recheck my sugar in a little bit to make sure it's come back up. But to answer the question of on and off, I think the first bet would be just to ask the patient to suspend the pump. Um, once you remove the infusion set from the patient, they will need a fresh reservoir infusion set and insulin to reinsert the infusion set and start using the pump again. So if you remove it all together, they won't be able to restart without the supplies necessary to do so. Gotcha. All right. Anything else you want to say about pumps before we move on to a non-pump question? Yeah, I think... Uh, Ultimately, as more and more patients come into the hospital in acute care setting, utilizing these newer technologies and advances in diabetes management, the onus should always be on the patient to know the pump, to know the device. But at the same time, uh, make sure to have a conversation with the patient and with their diabetes clinicians, whether it be an endocrinologist, whether it be a primary care doctor with a diabetes uh, perspective. Um, on their insulin pump therapy, on their sensor therapy. Um, respect the pump for what it is, which is a device that can deliver a very potentially dangerous medicine, but also a life-saving medicine. And if the pump is used correctly, uh, patients won't have any problems. If you take that life-sustaining medicine away, bad things will ensue. And in the hospital, uh, risk of diabetic ketoacidosis is significant. Um, but you're going to see more and more pumps over time, more and more sensors. And as we, quote, close the loop in insulin pump and sensor technology, um, these devices are going to become more and more pervasive. All right. Well, you, you've naturally led into our next question, which is there's somehow been a myth that is in the resuscitative and critical care fields that a sick patient is at incredible risk for hypoglycemia. So suspend all the insulin in these type 1 diabetics. And if you're going to give any, give you know homeopathic doses of insulin. And in my experience, it's actually the opposite. They actually become insulin resistant in their critical illness and need us to be uh, paying attention with alacrity to their insulin requirements even more. So tell us about basal insulin in the critically ill and the type 1 diabetic. So, Scott, you know I'm going to agree with you a thousand percent. You hit the nail right on the head. Um, usually when patients are critically ill in acute illness, they become more resistant to insulin. And if you look at um, some of the bench research early on exploring uh, inflammation in acute, ins uh, acute illness, um, hyperglycemia and relative hypoinsulinemia are, are big issues. Um, inflammatory cytokines are up. Uh, Hepatic gluconeogenesis is up. 
catecholamine production is up. And as a result, in fact, during times of stress, during times of acute illness, patients' insulin requirements may indeed go up. Now, the question becomes, how do you address a patient's basal insulin requirements while they're sick? And how do you address their prandial or mealtime or carbohydrate-based insulin requirements while they're sick? And so much of the answer to those questions depends on the patient themselves and the critical illness itself. For a patient with diabetic ketoacidosis, it's relatively straightforward. What I usually tell people is that evaluation and management of DKA is one of the most algorithmic uh, approaches in internal medicine and emergency medicine that we have. It's been tried and proven over many, many decades. And so long as you address by algorithm the DKA, you'll get from point A to point B relatively quickly and safely and efficiently. When a patient comes in and they happen to have diabetes, but they're admitted for other critical illnesses, trauma, for instance, their basal insulin requirements will go up. The question becomes how to address those needs. At an institution like ours, I do tend to utilize insulin drip therapy um, more often than not in those times of acute illness because by utilizing the insulin drip, you get to remove from the milieu another potential call variable that can impact the primary illness. So if you decide to treat someone's basal insulin requirements with sub-Q depot insulin while they're critically ill, and then they become septic, you have to deal with, as I said earlier, the pharmacokinetics of that depot insulin for as long as it's designed to last. Whereas an insulin drip, you can turn off, and the half-life of intravenous insulin is on the order of minutes. So the beauty of an insulin drip in times of critical illness is such that the physician has much more control over insulin delivery than they might uh, with the delivery of insulin by sub-Q method. Is there an insulin drip rate that will keep patients out of DKA? We could fine-tune later. We could figure out the optimal level. Is there a starting dose just to keep the patient from developing ketosis? That's a great question. Um, in terms of basal insulin requirements and how to meet those requirements, what we generally do is think about a patient's overall requirements throughout the day. And a good starting dose is 0.5 units of insulin per kilo per day. What we then do is divide that number in half. Half of that amount is usually given to the patient in the form of basal insulin. Half of that amount is usually given in the form of prandial insulin. So if you were to ask me just off the cuff, what's a good uh, basal insulin rate to provide a patient so that their needs are met while they're ill, I think if you started at about 0.2, 0.25 units per kilo per day, you'll be well served. Understand, however, that especially in times of acute illness, there are a number of different factors that can impact that basal requirement. So for instance, if someone has acute on chronic or chronic renal failure, their insulin requirements can plummet. And we have patients on as low as 0 0.2, 0 0.15, 0 0.1 units per kilo per day of basal insulin. For patients who are obese, who have insulin resistance, who are on steroids or pressors, their insulin requirements are going to be significantly higher. And we've had patients on as much as 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, one unit per kilo per day of basal insulin. So there are variations on that theme, but a good number to remember to estimate someone's insulin requirements about 0.5 units per kilo per day, half of that being given in the form of basal insulin. That's fantastic. And now just for the audience, I'm sure there are people that have always wondered this and have been afraid to ask, are all the insulin unit dosages equivalent 
For instance, if you're calculating a daily insulin requirement, can you substitute what the patient takes in Atlantis for what you're now going to put them on the drip for their basal insulin? Absolutely. So when we conceptualize a patient's total daily dose of insulin, we add up all the insulin they're receiving and all the insulin they need in the form of short-acting, intermediate-acting, or long-acting insulin. So when you're converting a patient from an insulin drip to sub-Q insulin, you use their utilization on an insulin drip over the course of the last 24 hours or 20 hours, there are different ways to approach it, as their total daily dose of insulin, and you switch to sub-Q insulin based on that number, based on that 24 hours of exposure to insulin. The same could be said when converting from a patient's home sub-Q regimen to IV insulin. But most institutions I found, small and large, do have established IV insulin drip protocols uh, that can help guide the clinician to determine how much insulin the patient may need when they're taken off of their sub-Q insulin. That's fantastic. I don't want to take up too much of your time, so one last question. Tell us about euglycemic DKA with the new oral hypoglycemic agents. So we are finding uh, this entity of euglycemic DKA in some of the newer agents, in particular the SGLT2 inhibitors, which have come out in the last few years, uh, do carry a warning that they can cause a ketoacidosis um, in certain patients. The SGLT2 inhibitors are phenomenal meds. They're, produ- they're only used in type 2 diabetes, uh, not approved for use in type 1 diabetes. Their primary use at this point, based on outcomes data, is for patients with type 2 diabetes who have a history of CAD. So if you have a patient with coronary artery disease, established CAD, and they need a second-line agent to manage their diabetes, the SGLT2 inhibitors are, uh, are absolutely a useful med. The challenge, of course, is if a patient comes in with ketosis and they've been on one of these medications, how do you address the ketosis? So firstly, I'll say that you should always know the pharmacokinetics of the medications you're dealing with, and the SGLT2s um, can last from one to two days or longer, depending upon the formulation, especially as more and more meds within the class are released. So first and foremost is look up the med that they're taking and figure out how long it's going to stick around in their system before it's metabolized. Secondly, and I say this often in multiple audiences, not all ketosis in someone with diabetes is diabetic ketoacidosis. And you know this well, that there are patients come in with starvation ketosis, ketosis related to their uh, alcohol intake. There are many, many other types of ketosis in the differential related to renal failure that we often fail to consider when we've defaulted to diabetic ketoacidosis in a patient with diabetes. If you have a patient with type 2 diabetes and they're on one of these newer meds, I think you absolutely have to consider it as a potential cause of euglycemic ketosis. Treat the ketosis as you otherwise would and wait until the med is out of their system. Fantastic. Josh, I can't thank you enough for your time, and I know the audience is going to benefit from your knowledge. Thanks, Scott. Thanks so much. I I appreciate everything.